Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the latest episode of the Key Row Film Society. I am Pastor Neil Wemus. I am a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I specifically serve three congregations in Northwest Iowa. You can find out about these churches at www.iowaoclutherans.org. If this podcast that I started back in March-ish, maybe it's February, I think it's maybe March when I started recording these podcasts, I began recording these podcasts with the purpose of reviewing, analyzing movies and television with a little bit of a Christian, with a confessional Lutheran slant on it. Now, not every movie, every episode is going to have a really strong Christian theme. In those weeks, it's okay. I, you could look right on the podcast list. If you go into iTunes or whatever, you can see my sermons are right there. So go check those out. They won't be movie-based, typically. Uh, there won't be too much movie stuff in there, but it's there anyways. But <clears throat> this week is a podcast... That is a bit in. It's good, we're gonna have two movies we're going to review. The first one, the first one we are gonna look at is the movie known as Finding Neverland, and then the second one is X Men First Class, of which you just heard um, one of the soundtrack pieces from the movie. Which, and by the way, both of these movies had um, outstanding, outstanding soundtracks. Uh, but those are the two movies we're going to be reviewing. And I'm going to use these movies together. It seems really weird. Like, oh, if any of you are familiar with these two movies, you're just thinking, these movies could be any more different. You know, one's about... Finding Neverland is about uh, uh, J.M. Barry writing the, the, the story Peter Pan. And then on the other hand, you have X-Men First Class, which is about superheroes, right? Well, I'm going to bring these together. And the reason I just this last the reason I decided to do this sequence. Well, X Men First Class is kind of predetermined because at my the Christ and Cinema um, group that I have through my congregations, uh, this was the movie reviewed this month. And as habit, I like to do that, put that movie into the podcast within a relatively short time from that class. So this is that's the reason why I'm going to be doing um, X-Men First Class is because this was the movie that was used in that Bible class. This is Neverland, however, was not actually what I was originally going to do for this episode. Originally, I was going to do the movie Unbreak, Unbreakable uh, by M. Night Shyamalan, and I decided not to do this. And there's a reason why I, there's a topic that I was aiming at. Uh I'm on a group that's called uh, the Confessional Lutheran Singles, right? And um, as you can tell by the fact that I'm in that group, I am a single Lutheran, all right? And a little discussion broke out. And it absolutely bugged me to no end. And there was this discussion about whether or not a pastor should be reading comic books or playing video games. 
Now, this is not going to address the video game part of it. But I'll straight up tell you this is... <clears throat> the What video games does do for you... <coughs> just a simple thing is it teaches... Um, it teaches sol uh, problem-solving skills, which... You know, that's always valuable. Um, there's actually some skills that do get created through playing video games. Uh, but I'm not going to focus too much on that. The bigger thing I'm going to focus in on is the issue of comic books. Are comic books appropriate for an adult in general to read? Are they, quote, childish? Which is why originally I was going to do Unbreakable, because Unbreakable kind of plays into the comic book world. It shows, kind of plays into the idea that there's something more than meets the eye with it. But I decided to go with Finding Neverland instead. And the reason I went with Finding Neverland is because Finding Neverland is a movie that is created in a world where is taken place during a time in the world where fairy tales were the things that were viewed the same way as we view comic books today. And honestly, we haven't changed our attitudes towards fairy tales. We still think of the fairy tale, of the fantastical stories, as something for children, and not to be bothered by adults. Now, so... Uh, before we get into that movie, before I get into my review and analysis of that movie, and I'm going to tell you that this the this is Neverland analysis is going to be quite a bit longer than the X Men First Class one. I'm going to warn you that. But before I get to that, uh, let's listen to the trailer for the movie so you can kind of get a little bit of a preview of what the movie was about. A man looking for the inspiration that he lost. You'll play this evening. I think I can do better. Well, that was a disaster. To find it in the most unexpected place. <laughs> Excuse me for standing on my sleeve. I might point out you're lying under my bench. So sorry, my boy's bothering you. Jay and Barry, pleased to meet you. He died, her husband. He left her with four boys. Now. of imagination will forever change their lives <laughs> striving to be some kind of public eccentric mother you should be aware james what some people have been saying that you spend much more time with mrs davis than you do with your own wife have you no idea how much your friendship has cost my daughter what are you suggesting this fall young boys should never be sent to bed Always wake up a day older. Miramax Films invites you to discover. What's it like, Neverland? One day I'll take you there. A story you'll never forget. It's the best you've written, James. Behind a legend. He is a boy who stays young forever. James. You always loved. That is never a man. Oh, Mr. Barry, I don't think we need to include you on everything that goes on in this household. I need to go on pretending with you. Johnny Depp, Kate Winslet, Joe 
Alright, so that was the trailer for the movie Finding Neverland. Uh, I will straight up say that that was actually kind of a cruddy trailer for the movie. Uh, just watching that trailer, I wouldn't actually want to go see the movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, as it goes sometimes with trailers. But anyways, uh, Finding Neverland was definitely a very successful movie. Um, in terms of um, the Oscars... It got nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, and Best Film Editing. And it ended up winning that award for the Best Original Score. Um, it was a, it was truly a very, very good movie. Uh, strong performance by Johnny Depp. Um, extremely imaginative. Uh, <coughs> just a very, very enjoyable movie. And, you know, just from the dialogue, and you could, and some of the thing, the a lot of the quotes in the movie are taken straight from the mouth of uh, J.M. Barry, who the movie is, you know, it's based on his writing of this story. Now, is it completely accurate? No, from what I was reading, what I read... There's some there. They made some slight adjustments, and some of the adjustments that were made, I actually think, might have been kind of ni nice of them to do that because um, the true story in some cases might have looked some made some people in the story look worse. Um, and I'm not gonna go too much into that, but it really is, you know, a lot of what you look for in a movie. It's. Like I said, strong dialogue, strong writing, strong characters, uh, good use of, you know, camera. Uh, the, it, the switching back and forth between the scenes of imagination and the scenes of reality. The, <coughs> the incredible soundtrack that goes along with the movie. And the story itself is just so... Especially given the fact that it is very much based on a real story. It's... It's an emotional story. And... You know, I've seen this movie many times. And I, I, you know, I just watched it this evening to get prepared to, prepare to record this. And at the end of the movie, I, I just had a stream of tears going down the side of my face just because of how emotional that movie gets. And, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, I apologize. I've got to warn you, whenever you listen to my reviews, these are spoiler-rich reviews. But, and it's really not a movie that I think really there is much spoilers. You kind of know, kind of get an idea that some of this is going to happen, but... The last scene with uh, Kate Winslet's character, who play who plays Sylvia Lewin Davies, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, you know in the movie that her character that she's dying, 
And that very, very much plays into what ends up being the Peter Pan film. And, but the last scene, one of the last scenes of the movie is her last scene. And it just is so powerful. So emotional. I mean, that is what you call... It's a good example of movies at its best. Incorporates everything. And that little scene incorporates just what everything you want in a good movie. It's, it actually does engage the imagination with this completely true story. And, like I said, uses the music, uses every little thing it can to enrich that scene. It's, like I said, it's a, you know, if on a, a five-star scale, I would honestly say Finding Neverland is one of the few five-star movies. And as long as I've done these podcasts... This is the first movie I've given a five stars to. And just because it is just so well done. Uh, and the thing is, is this movie... You know, it's... The reason I picked this, as I mentioned, was because of this conversation that came out about comic books. Well, this movie very much plays into a backdrop... Whether people are telling me you can't do a movie with with an alligator, with a crocodile that ticks, and, you know, children who are flying and fairies and all that stuff, that's not going to work with a bunch of businessmen. And this play ended up being an enormous success. And we know it's an enormous success because I probably guarantee it that every single one of you who are listening to this podcast have heard of Peter Pan. That's how huge of a success it was. And it was originally shown to businessmen. I mean, yes, there were children in the audience. But it was shown to businessmen, to adults. Because here's the thing, this is... There is this foolish, idiotic idea that came around in the 20th century. I should say it came really strong in the 20th century during the the height of modernity that fairy tales that the fantastical world was only for children. But the thing is, you look at where, by the way, where this idea began to take root was in the Enlightenment. It took root in the the hot the hot the great some of the great early atheists. Hume was, for instance, one of the people that really wrote spoke said some really strong comments against fairy tales and fantasy. But this is what I I got a whole selection of quotes here. Albert, here I'm going to go to Jake G.K. Chesterton. If you don't know who G.K. Chesterton is. He was probably one of the, if not the greatest, 
at least one of the top two or three theologians of the 19th century. He was a Roman Catholic theologian, but a dang good one. Here's what he's, he had, there are so, so many quotes by Chesterton about fairy tales. He says, here's one quote. Fairy tales do not tell children the dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children the dragons can be killed. Another one from Chesterton. If you happen to read fairy tales, you'll observe that one idea runs from one end of them to the other. The idea that peace and happiness can only exist on some condition. This idea, which is the core of ethics, is the core of the nursery tales. Again, G.K. Chesterton. Can you not see that fairy tales in their essence are quite solid and straightforward? but that this everlasting fiction about modern life is in its nature essentially incredible? Folklore means that the soul is sane, but the universe is wild and full of marvels. Realism means that the world is dull and full of routine, but that the soul is sick and screaming. The problem of the fairy tale is what will a healthy man do with a fantastic world? The problem of the modern novel is what will a man do with a dull world? In the fairy tales, the cosmos goes mad, but the hero does not go mad. In the modern novels, the hero is mad before the book begins and suffers from the harsh steadiness and cruel sanity of the cosmos. So three pretty good quotes by G.K. Chesterton. Um... Here's another. Here's one from. So if you you want to think, if any of you have this idea that, um, that only you know un- the unintelligent may read a comic book, or fairy tales or fantastical. This is commenting of fairy tales, but here is what Albert Einstein said. Albert Einstein's kind of one of the running definitions of genius in the history of the planet. All right. Very, 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 very intelligent man said this. When I examine myself and my methods of thought, I come to the conclusion that the gift of fantasy has meant more to me than any talent for abstract positive thinking. Again, another Albert Einstein quote, and this is actually based off of a story. There's a legend, and admittedly, there's... There's questions as to where this originated but there's a there's a story that this woman came up to Chester to Albert Einstein and asked him what should I do what should my child read in order to become a great scientist well here's a variation of that story into a quote form it says if you ever if you want your children to be intelligent read them fairy tales If you want them to be more intelligent, read them more fairy tales. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, one of the the great Christian minds of the 20th century, said this, The fantastic or mythical is a mode available at all ages for some readers. For others, at none. 
At all ages, if fantasy and myth is used well by the author and meets the right reader, it has the same power to generalize while remaining concrete, to present in palpable form not concepts or even experiences, but whole classes of experience, and to throw off irrelevancies. But at its best, it could do more. It could give us experiences we have never had, and thus, instead of commenting in life, instead of commenting on life, can add to it. I'm speaking, of course, about the thing itself. Not my own attempts at it. Juveniles, indeed. Am I to patronize sleep because children sleep sound? Or honey because children like it? I actually love that very end. He says, because children read these things, we have this idea we shouldn't read it. And so C.S. Lewis just made the comment. He says, well, children like to sleep. Are we to no longer sleep? Children enjoy honey. Are you to, we do not enjoy a little bit of honey? Terry Windling, who's a essayist, wrote this. Though now we think of fairy tales as stale stories intended for very young children, this is a relatively modern idea. In the oral tradition, magical stories were enjoyed by listeners young and old alike, while fairy tales, including most of the tales that are best known today, were published primarily for adult readers until the 19th century. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote... The consultation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for thus there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive in its fairy tale or other world setting. It is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of the discatastrophe of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar as evangelium, which if you don't know what that word means, evangelium means gospel or good news, giving a fleeting glance of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, Poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy tale of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its vents, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, a catch of breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears. As keen as that given, that given by any form of literary art, and having a peculiar quality. That's Tolkien. There's also records of <clears throat> uh, Winston Churchill was quite fond of books such as uh, Gulliver's, um, what is it? Gulliver's Travels. Um, he was a, he apparently read that quite regularly. And we're talking about the man who, you know, based, led England in World War II. 
This movie, Finding Neverland, is challenging the idea that the, the imagination becomes unnecessary not only for... Is it not... Not only in regards to children, but also in regards to adults. In fact, it even... It almost seems to give you... Let you know that... It's actually important of adults. As important for adults as it is for children. We live in a world... I mean, think about what's been going on in the news... We had that shooting in Orlando. And we've had shooting after shooting after shooting in this country. We need, we need to find a solution. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a little bit of imagination as to how to solve that? Wouldn't it be good to have people that can think outside the box? But we don't. The people who are in Washington, D.C., who we keep electing, they're growing up with a worldview that many people have that you should not read, the, you should not familiarize yourself with the fantastical. You should not bother with it. Because it is rubbish. And lo and behold, we live in a world that lacks empathy, that lacks understanding of the opposing worldviews. In a world that lacks creativity and ingenuity. And to solve the problems that we have. We live in a world of small minds. And I would argue that that's a product of a world that stopped reading the fantastical. The closing scene of Finding Neverland. Well, there's actually, throughout the movie, actually, there's some great moments that actually illustrate the value of these fantastical. I mean, for one, I mean, I think of like C.S. Lewis, I can't remember the, I don't have the quote with me, and so bear with me. But there's a couple quotes that just stood stand out to me that he makes. He talks about, you know, one of the great things about, uh, you know, talks about fairy tales or fantasy, one of the great things that children's going to read about that there are really virtuous knights out there. Or that, you know, any forest that you go into is enchanted. Makes the entire world a little bit more beautiful, a little more rich than it was before. And, and I argue that there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I remember there was a... Back in December... I went up to Duluth with my, my dad, my brother, and my sister. Uh, we were going up there for a funeral. And I remember on the way back, after, it was shortly after I read this quote by C.S. Lewis, and as we were driving along, I just looked at the trees in the forest that we were driving by, and a whole story was opened up in my mind of a story that could be happening in those very trees. And maybe think of that quote and see the, the world in a way that we don't see it. I know there's not really a story there. And most children 
do understand the difference that there are not real dragons. In fact, they'd probably rather there not be real dragons because they'd be kind of destructive. But it does enhance the way they view the world. There's a study that was done, and uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who has some really, really good podcast or TED Talks on education, he talked about this uh, study that they did. The study about genius level thinking amongst five year olds. And they found that 80% of this study group at the age of five was considered a genius. When they were the age 10, I think it dropped, it's the, the, the number who are considered genius, the number dropped substantially. By the age of 15, it was down to like 10% or something like that. And I'd argue that it's because that this imagination, this creative mind that children are born with, we, we, Beat it out of them. And they have no way to solve their problems because we are obsessed with the, quote, real world. But the real world isn't so real. The realistic stories aren't so real. A lot of these realistic stories, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, you'll have a kid that will tell the truth and be honest and he's praised for it. But in reality, the one who is honest might get beaten up, might be humiliated, might be punished. And it's nothing but let down. But a kid isn't going to expect to find a real dragon. He knows he's got, not going to go out and rescue a princess. Because he could look around. There's no castles around here. He knows that. But a child... Is he could he could comprehend things like this better than you as an adult can. Quite often, a child reading those might hear about those heroes and hope to be a hero himself. Might stand up for something. In the movie Finding Neverland, going back to it, at the very end of the movie, this is another... I mean, like I said, the movie, <clears throat> you know, definitely illustrates what I'm getting at, that these stories, these fantastical stories, these fairy tales, they bring you something. Um, they, they have messages, even in there for adults. So... Peter Pan. There's a scene in, you know, Finding Neverland where this old lady comes up to uh, J.M. Barry and uh, let's see if I can't find this this exchange. Okay, this is a conversation between uh, Bear, J.M. Barry and Mrs. Snow, this um, lady that goes to the um, to the play, to the to the show, and she says, so this is Mrs. Snow, she starts, 
Thank you. That was quite the nicest evening I've ever spent in the theater. Very kind of you to say. Thank you. Where's Mr. Snow this evening? Oh, I'm afraid he's left us. And he would so have loved this evening. The pirates and the Indians. He is really just a boy himself, you know. To the very end. Terribly sorry. How are you doing? I'm doing well enough now, thank you. I suppose it's all the work of the ticking crocodile, isn't it? Time is chasing after all of us. Isn't that right? That's right, Mrs. Metal. And that's the end of that little exchange. The ticking crocodile that you're very, you might be familiar with of the Peter Pan story. That ticking crocodile is the ticking of life that we're all dying. The death is pursuing us. And this is such an appropriate thing given that the story was so largely inspired by the Davies family. And, and if you read into the history of what happens with these kids, it becomes even more powerful. It kind of dramatic and sad. But specifically with the mother, you know she's dying. The ticking crocodile is coming for her. And so it is for all of us. The ticking crocodile that is death is chasing after us. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses, as it says in the book of, um, book of Ephesians. We're dead. And that ticking crocodile that is sin, death, and the devil is coming and looking to devour us. One by one, we will all die at one point or another. And that's what you see in that, mo in that play. At the, and the whole story is... There's a lot of allegory and message, not for just the child, but for the adult. The child's going to watch that play and just going to be overwhelmed by the imagination of it. But an adult, with some level of insight, will also be overwhelmed by the imagination. But will see something of themselves. And something of their world in that base, that story that's not for just children, but also for adults. Much as what we see in the current Pixar films. They're for children, yes. But they're also for adults. At the end of Finding Neverland, there's this... After... The mother dies. J.M. Barry is there with Peter. The mother's, you know, this, one of the boys. 
is having a conf- conversation with him. And so it begins, Peter says, It's just, I thought she'd always be here. To which Barry responds, So did I. But in fact, she is. Because she's on every page of your imagination. You'll always have her there. Always. Peter responds, But why did she have to die? Barry responds, I don't know, Peter. When I think of your mother, I always remember how happy she looked, sitting there in the parlor, watching a play about her family, about her boys that never grew up. She went to Neverland. And you could visit her any time you like. If you just go there yourself. How? By believing, Peter. Just believe. That exchange is empty from to some there's truth in that exchange, but there's as a Christian, there's something we would add to this. That makes this more powerful because this is one of the re- this is even another reason why the as a Christian we live in this modernist era and we we are we have become so fundamentalist. We focus on the here and now of our faith, and we do not see the absolute grandeur of what God has in store for us. Because we don't let our imagination be big. We've let it become so tiny and puny. That when we hear in the divine service, therefore with angels and archangels. So hear that. With angels. So think, you know, think of all those messengers of God. Archangels. This is the big, powerful, mighty you know, the angels are going to kick the devil's butt. <laughs> and you throw, you got the seraphim and the cherubim. The seraphim who are these massive creatures with the six wings. The wings as far as the eye can see. And all the company of heaven. That's, you know, that's, you know, the apostle Peter, the apostle Paul, James, John. You know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, St. Augustine, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, King Solomon. And every single person that has ever died in the faith. Might be a parent, a grandparent, it could be a child, a spouse, a sibling. Therefore, the angels and archangels, all the company of 
heaven. We laud and magnify your glorious name evermore praising you and saying Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabaoth. That is the song of the angels. They may not use that Anglican tune that we do. But those, those words are written from Scripture. And that's why we say, therefore, with them we sing. We are singing with the company of heaven. And in a little bit, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper and eat the very body of Jesus and drink the very blood of Jesus in, with, and under the bread and wine. So close your eyes. Use your imagination. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Hear that? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jumping down a little bit here to verse... This is Hebrews 12 again, jumping down to verse 21. Or verse 22. It says here, But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The new covenant. The sprinkled blood of which is spoken here in the, by the writer to the Hebrews is the Lord's Supper. And it's at the Lord's Supper. You see your local brothers and sisters of Christ, the ones that write it before your eyes. What you don't see is that you are united to the entire heavenly host in a sight that is beyond our imagination. But maybe if you spent a little time in those fantastical stories you could grasp it for a moment so your memory creates in your imagination the image of that person that you love who died at the same altar you are joining the blood of Jesus looking at you and saying don't worry I'm okay Jesus has got me 
So take it from Finding Neverland's quote. It would say, Peter, when I think of your mother, I, I will always remember how happy she looked sitting there in the parlor watching a play about her family, about her boys that never grew up. She went to eternity. And you can visit her any time you like if you just go there yourself. How? Hear his word. Hear God's word. Remember your baptism. Receive the Lord's Supper. There. It is there that our loved ones who died in the faith reside. Now you're hearing this whole talk. You might be wondering yourself, what does this have to do with comic books? Well, I'd argue that comic books or graphic novels might be a little bit in the same category. It's something that's been portrayed as being for children. Instead of knights, we have guys in capes and in tights. And they have dragons, and they have superpowers, they got wizards, they got eat these villains. But they too do make us hope for a better world. I'm mindful of a scene in the movie Daredevil where in the t or not the movie but the TV show Daredevil in the second episode there's this conversation between Clara Temple who's a nurse and Matt Murdock who happens to be Daredevil and he says so it goes here so she says so what? I'm supposed to take it on faith I'm on the right side of this? Matt responds, You don't carry a masked man bleeding to death into your apartment on faith. You knew which side you were on the moment were on were on the moment you found me. Why'd you help me, Claire? Claire responds, I'm a nurse. Work the ER at Metro General. A few weeks ago cops bring in three men, said they were robbing tourists. Beating them up pretty bad. Apparently a man in a black mask took issue with their activities and decided to step in. I counted nine broken bones between them. A few days later, after that, a few days after that, EMTs bring in a 19-year-old waitress. Said some guy she knew waited for her after work in the parking lot. Attacked her. Tried to drag her in the alley. She said she screamed and screamed. And a man in a black mask heard her and he saved her life. So yeah, words getting around. And I want to believe in what you are doing. The reality is, is we live in a world with so, so much evil. There may not be a Doctor Doom or a Green Goblin or the Joker. But there are horrible, horrible, evil people in this world. 
We have ISIS. We have murderers. We have rapists. We have drug dealers. We have sex trafficking. So many evils in this world. And these kids are going to grow up and see it. And especially young men. Young boys. Will grow up to be men. See, boys are to be protectors of their family. Not because women are weak, but because women are valuable. They are a gift from, they are, woman is the very, other than life itself, is the very first gift that God gave to Adam. She is valuable because she is a gift from God. To her husband. And a man is to protect his wife. He's to protect and cherish all women. Reading these superhero stories and these comics. Train kids. And even sometimes might remind adults. That they are to be heroes. Now sometimes being a hero doesn't mean that you're going to. You know, stand in front, you know, and dodge, you know, stand in front, jump in front of a, of a bullet for someone. It might be as simple as making sure that they have a home. When somebody has ha had their heart broken, just being there to be a helping ear. There are so many ways that we could be heroes to people in this sick, sick world. And you read about these heroes. You want to be a hero yourself. These fictional stories inspire. These fictional stories deal with complex issues. And it's right at this that we are going to trans... We are going to move in to the next section. Like I said, I'm reviewing two movies today. The first movie was Finding Neverland, and the second one is X-Men First Class. And so as we transition into that, um, let us listen to the soundtrack, the, the trailer for the movie. Exist. They'll fear us. And that fear will turn to hatred. 
won't free step a wall. We won't free risk our lives doing so. We have it in us to be the better man. We already are. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. They're just kids. No, they were kids. Alright, so that was a <clears throat> trailer to the movie X-Men First Class. Comic books throughout the his its history. You know, fairy tales deals with issues of the time. Deals with issues that people commonly deal with. Superheroes, comic books, throughout their history have dealt with issues of their current and present in the 1930s, Superman was created during the worst some of the worst years of the Great Depression. You have this character who was born out of Kansas, one of the states that was to some degree affected by the Dust Bowl. And he moves to the big city of Metropolis. And he's this mild-mannered reporter that happens to rise above and because something else entirely. He's a character created in the midst of the Great Depression to inspire the adults, not the children, but the adults who were struggling to make ends meet in the midst of the Great Depression. Batman was created to fight crime. The 1940s or 30s was an era of a lot of organized crime. I mean, think about Al Capone, well, about a decade earlier, but he was not the end of organized crime. So Batman was created for that purpose. The 1940s, you had Cap during World War II, Captain America was created to inspire patriotism, to inspire our soldiers, as they fought over, overseas, lots and lots of comic books were sent to our American soldiers to encourage them. Jump forward a few years, in the 1950s, there's some interesting battles in Congress that other people are more um, qualified to talk about than I do. I am. But in 1963, then you all of a sudden you had these new wave of superheroes. You had Daredevil, the first blind superhero. And then you had the X-Men. 
I mean, think about the biggest things, some of the biggest events were going on in the 1960s. And one of the biggest events that would stand out is the fight of against racism, the civil rights movement. You had and you had two major civil rights activists. The biggest one was of course Martin Luther King. But the number two guy, the one who would said by any means necessary, was Malcolm X. So the Jewish writer, Stan Lee, creator, created these X-Men as an allegory for this battle against prejudice, against racism. And it's very interestingly for the villain, he creates a villain who happened to survive the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. So he has been, has experienced firsthand the effects of man's evil and prejudice and fear. And now he's seeing this racism, this prejudice against mutants, and he begins to fight back. And it might be much the same reason. Maybe that's why Malcolm X was the way he was. Malcolm X had a less than wonderful childhood. And... You know, that a lot of that contributed. I mean, he ended up spending a considerable time in prison. And not because he was speaking against something. He was in prison because he was legitimately a criminal. And a big part of it was he was trying to be white. He was trying to deny his race. And that might have contributed a lot to how he ended up being. X-Men First Class, the movie, very much plays into these themes. It continues with this theme on races, about prejudice. But the thing is, is X-Men First Class is written in, you know, the 21st century. The issue of racism is still there, but it's, very, it's a little bit more nuanced. And so you could definitely see in the show... In the film, that they are dealing... I would say that they're more than likely dealing with the issue of homosexuality. And I'd say they're very much pro-gay. Um, Pro-LGBT, I should say. Um, in the way that it's being portrayed. In the way it's being talked about. And I don't want to go into those that issue. I don't want to get into LGBT topic today. Because that's not the focus of this podcast some point I'll probably find a good movie that plays with this theme, but I'm just not going to deal with it right now. But the thing is, you look throughout the show, you have these characters who, they're all mutants. They all are different than everyone else. And they're hiding it, and they very much have, their entire life, thought that they were the only one. And you see this happen multiple times where people think that they're the only one only to discover that there's someone else like them and you see the incredible joy and tranquility when they realize that they are not alone and this movie is it's a it's a reflection in an image 
of what it is like for every child. You know, this um, last this last November, I'm you know I'm a pastor in Iowa District West of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So back in November, uh, we had what is what is the the, um, the district youth gathering at the Embassy Suites in Des Moines. And the topic, the theme of the week was surrounding the topic of identity. That question of who am I? Who am I in this world? The issue of identity and belonging is a major issue in our culture and is definitely being played on in this X-Men film. It is at the heart of the sexuality debate. There, for many in the LGBT community, the fact that they're lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, that is the core to their identity. And to tell them that it's sinful or it's wrong is an attack on, on, an ident- on identity. And so this is... But it doesn't, it doesn't end there. That's not the only identity struggles we have in this world. When you graduate from high school, you're trying to figure out who am I in this world? And there are people that don't figure it out after they graduate. They don't figure it out for a very long time. Some people don't figure out who they are until they're in their 40s. And it, or maybe sometimes we'll, think we'll figure out who we are for a little while in our 20s. And then come when we turn into, get into our late 30s, we all of a sudden begin to forget who we are. You know, maybe we have kids when you're young and then all of a sudden they graduate from high school and you have the empty nest and all of a sudden you're beginning to wonder, who am I now? Or if you've been married for a long time and and your spouse dies, you all of a sudden begin to wonder, who am I now that I'm not with this spouse? Life is about struggles with identity. And a lot of times, one of the first great treatments to our struggles of identity is re- re- learning that we are not alone in our struggles. Although our each individual, I mean, there's differences, there's nuances to each situation. Just with the mutants, they all had different powers. You know, they had different powers, so their struggles with their identity was unique to a degree. But they, the commonality was that they struggled with the fact that they're a mutant. And so all of us struggle with being, with a variety of things. So when we lose a loved one, we may struggle with that. But there's someone out there. There are others out there that have lost loved ones. They might not have lost them in the same way as you did. But you'll still find you'll have quite a bit in common. That is... Uh, what I see in this movie. See, here's the thing as a Christian. We, so you see as Christians, we have an answer to this problem of identity. I mean, it doesn't solve our jobs, what we want to do for a living. It doesn't help us figure out who we're going to get married totally. But it gives us a foundation. It gives us a starting point. I want to begin by reading here from Ephesians chapter 2. 
For he, Christ, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In this world, we're looking for who we are, trying to figure out our identity. For those who have received the gift of faith, who have been called to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your belonging is that you are not strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the writings of the Old, and the Old Testament and the New Scriptures. So the apostles... That would be the New Testament. In the, the prophets, the Old Testament, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, in the waters of baptism, you were grafted into the household of God. You became a citizen of God's house, of his heavenly kingdom. That is the identity we find. So you look at a movie like X-Men First Class, it gets you thinking about the struggle for identity and the thing is, and this is true for us when we're dealing with a lot of the secular stuff, not many of them are going to fall into the Christian hope. And so that is where we, Lutherans, we confessing Lutheran Christians, come in. We see this movement, we see this struggle that is in this world, and this is... You know, we see this struggle of prejudice, and we should be fighting against prejudice. We read about these heroes who stand up against prejudice, against racism. And we should feel, it gives us a burning desire to do the same, to speak against those who beat down those who are weaker. But it's for those who are struggling with their identity, struggling with knowing who they are. 
We can point him to the Christ. And especially to, you know, your child, if maybe it's one of your own children, or maybe it's a, a youth in your church, or a confirmation student, or whoever it is. This is what we, say, we could say. And I'm using this hymn that I so love that's out of the hymnal. It's called, it says this. God's own child. I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. He, because I could not pay it, gave my full redemption price. Do I need earth's treasures many? I have one worth more than any that brought me salvation free, lasting to eternity. Sin disturb my soul no longer. I am baptized into Christ. I have comfort even stronger. Jesus cleansing sacrifice. Should a guilty conscience seize me, since my baptism did release me, in a dear forgiving flood, sprinkling me with Jesus' blood, Satan, hear this proclamation. I am baptized into Christ. <laughs>